This is the Douglas Robin Show. Welcome to Douglas Robin's Den of Discussion. Today I'm speaking with author, inspirational coach, and third generation minister, Dieter Randolph. Welcome, my friend. How are you today? I'm doing great, and I'm really excited to be on the show today. Thanks for having well, me. Excellent. We're excited to have you here. So let's get right at it. Okay. Um, but uh, let me give you a little background about Dieter. He's the author of Meaning Fulfilled and another book called uh, Past Okay, and you can find him at a website, Way Past Okay. Uh, but we'll get into a little bit that I love the name of the book, by the way, meaning fulfilled. So it's sort of a, a double entendre. You got meaning fulfilled or meaning fulfilled. Were you <laughs> deliberately doing that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that one of the recurring themes in the book is that when you get, you know, you're on the right track because when you get on that right track, things spill over into other things. So if you find something meaningful you get a sense of fulfillment from it. And from there, you feel like you got to do something about it. I think that's just sort of a, a, a human characteristic. When you find something really good, it doesn't stay in the world of thought, let's say. It leads to a feeling. It doesn't just stay in feeling. It leads to action. And you can see that in little ways and big ways. I mean, when you find a good restaurant, you tell all your friends, you know, and so it's that sense of spilling over that I kind of wanted to capture in, in, in kind of a silly title. And isn't that something we're all looking for, sort of those synchronistic moments where the door is opening and there's always that, that jubilation, that excitement when you know you're on the right track because things feel good, you're excited, your mind's excited, your heart's excited, instead of that slog through the day when you feel like you're just rinsing and repeating. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, um, one of the things that, that I find myself saying a lot to people is, look, the universe doesn't get tired. You know, if you're a religious person, you can say God doesn't get tired. You can say love doesn't get tired. It, it doesn't matter what you call it, but that bigger than you thing doesn't get tired. And so if your life makes you tired, that's a really good indicator that you're given from the wrong place. Well, this leads me into the much broader uh, sphere that I'd like to get into. I just want to read a, a brief uh, snippet from your bio. I'm paraphrasing. I am on fire to make ways to take the spiritual experience beyond the traditional church setting. I'm here to help you find a life that you love, one that feeds you instead of making you feel tired. We're all in this together. When you win, so does the world. But, you know, there's sort of a dichotomy to this, right? I mean, in some ways, we're all trying to pay the bills and consumerism and buy all this crap. So we have <laughs> to work more to pay for the crap. Um, and it's really a double edged sword. And then the opposite is, well, we're also trying to find meaning. But when you're so busy working all the time, it's harder to find the meaning because you're just sort of being pulled apart by that desire to expand within and find that joy, that meaningful life and the necessity to pay the bills Now you don't have to be happy in life, but you do have to pay the bills. You do have to survive. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I think that that's, that's one of those things. But on the other hand, first of all, I'd like to say that history is full of examples of people doing something that's in their heart to do 
doing something that makes them happy, doing something that that uh, they would they lose track of time when they do that kind of thing. And yet they're not just paying the bills, but they're quite wealthy, very successful yeah, sure. by outer uh, measures of judgment. So first of all, it can be done. But uh, more than that, I think that part of the trick is to get off of that, uh, get off of the hamster wheel. I think that there are big ways and little ways to uh, carve out space for meaning that will in turn make you a quote unquote successful person as well. I'm not suggesting that everybody who reads my book or who listens to our conversation today, you know, immediately quit their job and join the circus. I think that sometimes that can be irresponsible. And I think more than that, the the life that you're in right now, your relationship, your job, your socioeconomic political situation, the place you're in can teach you some things that you must need to know or you wouldn't be there. That's just kind of how it works. So I think that that immediately dumping everything and abandoning everything can feel great and it looks great in the movies. But the truth is there might be some stuff you need from where you are right now. And once you learn that lesson you'll find yourself moving on in really interesting ways. So I'm not suggesting that everybody has to just abandon the fact that you've got a mortgage, let's say. But I am suggesting that that mortgage can't tell you who you are. And that is a really big switch. I I think that so many of us let ourselves be defined by what we have or even by the pursuit of what we don't have to the point where what we already are kind of gets buried. I agree. I agree because we often see the reflection of what's around us or what the walls, the, 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 you know, the items, the job, whatever it might be that we're doing in this day to day often feels like the rejection, the, the, you know, the reflection of who we are. But the truth is that's just sort of a, a shirt we're wearing, if you will. Exactly. So, exactly. So, so, you know, I, I was inspired to write this book when I was sort of reflecting over the kinds of things that I've done with, with my career as a teacher, speaker, minister, and all that. And, and I don't, you know, I want to say right now, there are some people listening to this that would be put off by the words minister and church and stuff like that. And I want those people, especially to know that I totally get it. And I don't even do church with a capital C anymore. That's not really my thing, but I was brought up in that. Uh, and I've done some things to sort of leave that, that behind me. But I will say right now that the thing that kind of got me going on the book was I thought about the fact that as a minister, and just as, uh, just as we've talked about, my parents are ministers, my grandparents are ministers. It's sort of the family business. So I was raised in this, you know, but as part of that life, I have been to and been a part of and conducted probably hundreds of funerals. Now, that's a funny thing. I mean, it's certainly not something that one looks forward to. It's a little bit creepy to say, I'm looking forward to that funeral. But I will say it's something that I've been really honored by because something really interesting happens at funerals. I think that whether or not you're a religious person or a spiritual person, I think that something about being at the the beginning of a rite of passage, whether you believe that you move on into some other you know phase of existence or you believe that's just the end of everything, either way, it promotes uh, some philosophical insights. People at funerals tend to have some thoughts about life, the universe and everything and what it all means and how it all works and all that. And uh, it's just natural. 
But the funny thing about being in a funeral is that you never really want to tell the person sitting next to you because they're grieving, they're crying. And, and it seems a little bit crass to go, hey, I know you're crying, Uncle Larry, but let me tell you about this idea that I have about how it all works. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing. And so people kind of keep it to themselves. You can't tell the person you came to the funeral with. But what I found is that people do tell the guy standing at the front of the room, that's me. And so as a result, I have heard everything. I've heard people say uh, all kinds of things. I've heard incredible, inspiring insights and deep emotional sharing. I've heard some pretty good dirty jokes. I've heard a lot of things. But over all of these years of doing this, I have never heard anybody, never once heard anybody say, hey, that was a beautiful service and we shared some stories and that was nice, but I wish I would have heard more about their credit score. Right. I wish I would have heard more about their height and weight and, and zip code. And how many hours they, they worked a, a day at their, their job. Yeah, exactly. And, and so the, the thing that occurred to me was the numbers don't matter. The data, it just doesn't matter. It's meaningless. Nobody cares about this stuff. And we all know that. But it's really interesting because there's a couple of things about that. First of all, you know, life is kind of a you are what you eat kind of a proposition. And what I mean by that is if you chase meaningless things, it makes you feel meaningless, too. And I think that we're marketed to, I think that, that people take advantage of that and they go, oh, you're feeling, feeling meaningless in your life. Well, you need to buy these other products. Of course. You take need to work out a few more. Yeah, yeah exactly. But that just continues. That's that hamster wheel. It just continues and perpetuates the cycle. And so that's, that's an interesting part of the equation that it just, the numbers just don't mean anything. And like I said, it's interesting that everybody knows that. And yet most people spend most of their time chasing those exact numbers. People obsess over, if I could lose a few more pounds, if I could make a few more dollars, if I could get a few more likes on my Instagram picture of nachos, if I could just get more, more of whatever it is, if I could just chase the numbers. And so that's a pretty significant disconnect that gets us into some pretty significant trouble. Well, I think this is this is the broader topic that that um, like to keep uh, hitting at because you know these are sort of superficial exchanges, right? I mean, I'm still at a full time job, and you know my boss sends out you know information. Well, we need to do this software more because we're on a on a list and we're not getting enough done over here, and this one over here, oh, you've only done a couple over here. Like they're meaningless to me. It means yeah. nothing to me. But it's part of the game, and he's just—it's just rolling downhill from here. Him, he doesn't care either about it. Um, and we fill our lives with this, with this, this information that's ultimately meaningless. And that's why, to harken back to the funeral, this is—it's almost an opportunity for people to bring out the deeper parts, you know, the the more meaningful aspects of their relationships with whomever. Um, but most of the time, our exchanges are superficial. The consumerism is superficial. We're filled with these superficial um, thoughts and desires and everything else that, that we're being bombarded with to be attracted to, to buy the new iPhone, to buy the <laughs> new this or that, when ultimately it doesn't actually do anything for us on a more spiritual level. 
No, of course not. And so that's the thing. One of the good news moments about all of this is that one way or another, we all grow one way or another, easy way or hard way. And that can mean that, that people have some kind of an awakening where they decide to reprioritize their lives. And that's beautiful. But I have to say that a lot of times it comes from something really surprising and maybe even a little bit traumatic. A funeral is a great opportunity to reevaluate your life and decide that I'm going to chase some things that have a little bit more meaning because it's what grandma would have wanted or whatever. Sometimes it's, it's a beautiful thing to realize that one way or the other, something will happen because our lives are this incredible pressure cooker. At some point, meaning explodes out. And it can be in all kinds of different directions. The trick is to try and find ways to make ourselves nimble enough to where we know it when we see it. That's the trick. And so, you know, like I said, it can be a funeral. It can be a, you know, that love at first sight kind of an experience. It can be whatever it is, big or small. The trick is to know it when you see it. And one of the reasons I wrote this book and one of the reasons that I do what I do is not to convert people to a a specific ideology. I'm not interested in that. And I do believe in God, but I can't believe that God cares about brand recognition. I'm not interested in converting people to anything. What I want to do instead is inspire people to try and get ready so that when something meaningful happens, they seize the opportunity to make their lives better. Because I think the world gets better as a result because the world's just made up of people like you and me. If we get better at this, that's how it works. Yep, yep. I agree. Even corporation CEOs, every, every company is simply filled and run by people. Yeah. Um, so that's the question, though, is if you're simply repeating yourself day to day, same thoughts, same actions, same you know, end result, there really is no room for this change to come. So it seems like we would need to put ourselves in new environments, maybe taking risks here and there, um, because that's the only way, you know, a plant needs to be in fertile soil and in the right environment to grow. And I don't think we're we're any any different um, because if you keep doing the same thing, well, the same thing is gonna keep happening. Sure. But like I said, I think that it is really important, but I, I think that that one way or another, you'll you'll get forced into it, whether it's something like a midlife crisis, let's say, or something like a mass layoffs at a job or whatever, you sure. will you will end up maneuvering yourself into a position where there's a little bit more room, a little bit different perspective. Something will change. It always does. Now, just as you say, it is way healthier and a lot more pleasant to go looking for it instead of to have it happen to you. Yeah. You know, so it's that kind of thing. And so, you know, I think that it's really important to find ways to change the paradigm around a little bit, find ways to look at things from a different perspective. It's incredibly healthy, but the good news is that this is something that everybody's already good at. People say, oh, I'm just, you know, all I know how to do is this miserable job. And before that, when I was a kid, I was raised with the idea that you're supposed to kill yourself in school so you can go to a better school and make yourself miserable so you can get a job that you hate. And if you can just beat yourself up for long enough, then you'll get to retire and you have like 10 years of the life that you want before you die. And I get it. People say, I'm just, I'm so tired and there is no time for anything. I can't even begin to think about how to how to find meaning in my life. I don't know what that means. I, I'm not here to cure cancer. I don't I don't know what to do with that. It seems too big. 
And I understand that. But what I would say to people like that is start small. Start where you are. In other words, there are things that you think about, things that you do, things that that happen in your life that when you do them, they're just good all by themselves. They are, to, for lack of a better word, pointless. In other words, there's no external point. They're good in, in and of themselves. Love is pointless. It's inherently good. Art is pointless. Your favorite song is pointless. And yet those things are the best and truest things about you. So what I would say to people is find little ways to embrace what is pointless (laughs) in your life. And some of those things might feel a little bit silly. Does it really matter that when you make chocolate chip cookies, the whole world shuts down and you don't even care that, oh man, it's two in the morning. What am I doing? I got to work tomorrow. And yet I I made five batches because it's, it's fun to do. Yeah. You know, we're all, um, since, you know, since we were young, we're all taught to basically pursue something, chase something. If I get really good grades, then I can go to college. Then when I get really good grades in college, then I could get a good job. Then I get a good job. Then if I can make all this money, you know, it's this if then paradigm. If this happens, then I can be happy. And it's this illusion, this construct we've created or been taught um, that really is an illusion. Because you're never getting there. Right. You're never getting, oh, if I only had a million dollars then, um, and you're right, if we were so focused on the future from the past, and we're so, in a sense, ignorant of the present moment and the present moment of what am I doing now? What is this moment that I'm experiencing now? Am I filling it with joy? Am I just filling it with chasing the carrot? Yeah. And the thing is that finish line mentality, it comes from all over the place. You see it in school, you see it in some churches, you see it, you know, you name it. Mm -hmm. It comes from all over the place. It doesn't really matter where it comes from. The question is, what are we going to do about it? But the thing about the, the, that finish lane, finish line mentality is it it really is uh, problematic on a number of levels. For one thing, if all I'm doing is thinking about the future, I'm not actually going to do the things I need to do right now in order to be ready for that uh, magical future when it comes. I mean, I'll give you an example. Imagine that you got a job and it was a job you wanted to do and it paid pretty good and it was, it was okay. But the moment you got there, they show you your cubicle and your computer and all that stuff. You immediately go downstairs and get to the payroll department. And then what are you doing down here? Well, I'm here to make sure that, you know, you've got my direct deposit information, right. And my social security number and all. I want to make sure you guys do your jobs in the payroll department because I want to get paid and I want that to work right. I'm trying to be responsible and I got a mortgage, but you spend every day down there in the payroll department, just making sure that that paycheck comes through. Well, if you do that long enough, you will get fired because you're not doing the thing that you're there to do. Well, life is like that. And in general, you're not in the payroll department. There's something that you are here to do, big or small, doesn't matter. There's something that you're here in this moment to do. And if you spend all your time thinking about the outcome, you're going to miss it. And that's the deal. But more than that, the idea of a finish line is artificial anyway. You and I both know that when you get to a horizon, what you see is another horizon. And so it's just a complete pretend concept. And I have to say, it is actually a fairly recent concept before, let's say, the Industrial Revolution. 
people didn't work their job with the idea that if I keep doing this job long enough, I won't have to do the job anymore. That's a fairly recent uh, uh, invention. Before this, you know, if I was, let's say, a blacksmith in a village somewhere, I would never hope to be, I'm going to be an executive, I'm going to be a blacksmith manager, and I'm not ever going to work with metal anymore. No, your, your aspiration was, I want to get so good at this that people come from all over to, to buy my stuff, to use my services. The goal used to be mastery, and now it feels like the goal is abandonment. If I can do this long enough, I won't have to do it anymore. Well, can you imagine being in a romantic relationship? If I get good enough at being your husband, I want it to be your husband anymore. That's right. weird. You know, the, in, when something is noble, one of the ways you can tell that it's worthwhile, that you can do it honorably, for example, is am I doing this because I want to not do it anymore? Or am I doing it because I love it and I want to be so good at it? I want to get better at it. I want to be true to it, for example. That's a good test. Yeah, that's a great point because it makes you wonder how many things do we do simply as a means to an end as opposed to meaningful? Yeah, yeah. Because and when you're meaningful, the, you want to keep doing it, right? Yeah, that's the thing. And, you know, the, the, like I said, there's a million things when you do them, you lose track of time. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about how we got bills to pay and we got to put food on the table. And that's completely valid. I get that. But on the other hand, that whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs and food and shelter and all that kind of stuff, all of that tumbles to the ground in the face of something truly meaningful. When you do something you love, you lose track of time and you miss yeah. meals, you forget to eat. When you love somebody, you'll stand out in the rain, just like they sing about in the songs, that the needs don't matter. Now, yeah. it might take some time to learn how to do that. We're not trained for giving ourselves over to love and honor in that way. We're just not trained for it. It's not marketable, <laughs> but you can get good at it. You know, it's an interesting um, sensation when you're doing something you love. And as you said, you get lost in it. It's almost like that you're on this stream of infinity uh, the stream of the infinite. But when you're doing something you don't like, it feels like that moment is so compressed and so stressed, like there's just friction in that stream. And it's not part of the infinity. It's just part <laughs> of this stuck moment. Yeah. And it feels like a lie. That's how you know. You know, I would have people listening. It to seems this right wasteful now. is what it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, ask yourself, can I do this with honor? You know, and once again, we're not trained for it. You know, when you think about how we, we raise ourselves, I think there's a lot of pieces of that equation that are less than great. You know, I think that, that just small examples, you know, I was at, you know, I live in Florida and as a result of that, I go to Disney world all the time, all the time. I, I, before the pandemic, I would go about once a month. I just love that place. Everything about it. But I remember one time I was, I was in the magic kingdom, the quote unquote happiest place on earth. And I saw a, a kid in a stroller and the kid was looking down at some cartoons on an iPad. And I thought, wow, you're missing, like, this is for you. This is for <laughs> Why kids. are you what, here, kid? What are you doing? Yeah. And so, but I mean, it's, you know, and this is not going to be me. Hey, these kids today, that's not where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. But I will say that we are getting increasingly bad at being where we are. For you sure. know, if you wait in line for food and, and, 
when you're waiting to give your order to the guy, what you see is everyone in the line is looking at their phones because they are not able to talk to one another. They're not able to just be in the moment. They're not able to be bored. Nowadays, we binge watch something while we're watching something else on our phones. I think the key is the, the boredom part you just mentioned, because the people are seemingly less and less comfortable with their thoughts. Uh, because when they're not being distracted by something, well, what are you left with? Your thoughts and thoughts aren't always the friendliest. Um, but it's a, such a curious thing. My daughter will do the same. As soon as we get in the car within a few minutes, she's like, well, I'm bored. Like, well, look <laughs> out the window. And she's so creative, but she's so used to having that kind of immediate gratification, immediate stimulation. Well, that's not really life. You know, right. sitting in meditation or sitting in nature, if you're looking for like, you know, car chases and everything else, well, that, you're not going to find that. But if you're quiet enough, you're going to see a whole lot more. Well, I totally agree. And the thing is, when you think about how many inventions, new ideas, breakthroughs came from the silence, mm -hmm. came from boredom, frankly, yes, you know, that's a huge thing. If innovation comes from being able to be quiet for a moment, whether it's some kind of an introspection where you realize, oh, hey, you know what? I need to grow as a person because that thing I did wasn't great. Or, hey, there needs to be a better way to deal with who knows what, open heart surgery or stacking the dishwasher, whatever it is, anywhere in between. If you can't sit in the silence and frankly, if you can't be bored, you can't grow. There's no space for the growth. Yeah, exactly. So There's and no so. Space. It's troubling in a way when we realize how addicted our society has become to not letting itself be bored for a moment. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. You know, the Roman society was fed on bread and circuses. In the other words, we got to keep these people busy because if we don't keep them busy, they're going to start wondering why the powerful people are the powerful people. And I'm not suggesting a conspiracy, but I am suggesting the same psychology is in place where it keeps us from asking really important revolutionary questions because we're so busy looking down. I, I, I can't even imagine. Imagine if like, you know, um, Leonardo da Vinci or Thomas Jefferson or Tesla or any of these uh, Einstein, you showed him your phone. You said, look on this thing that I can put in my pocket. I have the sum total of all world knowledge. I can tell you the temperature in China. I can, I can pull up any book ever written. I can listen to anything that was ever recorded. It's all right here. And it is, you know, obviously not everyone has one, but most people in, in Western civilization do. You know, it's very widespread is the point. And you can do anything with this. We can communicate with each other instantly all over the world and even in space. And then Thomas Jefferson or whoever says, well, yeah, well, what do you do with it? Well, mostly I look at pictures of other people's food and I play a game where I put three shapes in order. Like I'm five. And watch cat videos. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's that thing of we've got incredible tools more than ever before. We have these incredible ways of connecting with one another, learning and sharing. And that's scary. Well, often we're, we're using it simply, in my opinion, to escape that boredom, to be entertained. But also, I think on a deeper level, we are looking for meaning. We are looking for a connection to something. Because again, if you're trapped in that little world 
and you're 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 hungry for satisfaction, hungry for stimulation. Well, that's really the only way to find it in that instant gratification mode. Right. Except the problem is it's not there. Right. I think that I think that you've hit on something really important, and that is that each and every one of us is born with a calling, a yearning for meaning, a yearning for connection, a yearning for deeper thoughts and, and all of that. Each of us has that potential within us. I think that just most of us don't know what to do with it. And so, well, maybe I'll just play this game or maybe I'll just really get into chemicals, you know, or whatever. It's the same stuff. The idea is that I think that we're not, we have not been exposed to the idea that it's okay to ask these questions. And so we sublimate that yearning by distracting ourselves. There's a great Tony Robbins line, and it's um, don't doubt your beliefs and believe your doubts. I like that. It's nice. Because that's what often happens is, well, you know, you have these images of, or, you know, of oneself, of this great life, and yet you don't see it around you, and maybe you have some doubts or self-image issues or self-conscious, and you don't get to the mountaintop because of all this that keeping you back, but it's mostly, again, just mental constructs um, and, or possibly society think, no, you're not going to, you're not good enough to do that. <laughs> That's not for you. Who are you to think that you can do it? It's like, well, I'm me. Who, who, who are you? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I think that, that again, so much of history has been, has shown that incredible heroes arise out of the downcast, the poor, yeah. the overlooked. I mean, that's so many stories, true and fiction that make our hearts sing. We know that this doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And I think that, that one of the things that comes up a lot when I work with people, when I do coaching and things like that is I really want us to get good at decoupling, at, de at disconnecting the idea that um, financial wealth has any bearing on how good you are or how happy you are. Sure, sure. And, and you know, like I said, everybody knows that. And yet, I don't know if we know that. But the truth is, you know, people who have lots of money who aren't happy. And you know people who don't have much at all, but do have happiness, who do have love, who do have some concept of self-esteem. The two things are completely disconnected. And look, there's nothing wrong with money. It's nice to pay the bills. You can do a lot of good with money and toys are fun. Nothing wrong with that. However, it can't tell you who you are. <laughs> one of the things that I say a lot is, um, you know, if you've ever watched one of those real housewives of whatever, you know, Beverly Hills or Hollywood or Atlanta, they got a million of those shows. What you see is people who have so much money and all of the things, the nice cars and the big houses and expensive clothes and, and you name it. But every single person on one of those shows is not only completely miserable, but it seems like they're dedicated to making everybody else miserable too. Right. So those things can't be connected. How much money you have can't possibly be any kind of indicator of how happy you are or how good you are or even how much potential you have. And so I think that when we know that, you know what, I can have a really sweet, impactful, happy life and not have a Maserati. Sure? If, you, if you disconnect <laughs> that and you aim for, the, if you aim for the happiness, I think a lot of times the other stuff happens too, but it, it won't matter. 
Yeah. Well, like I said, it's fun to have toys. Sure. You know, motorcycle I have, a four-wheeler, you know, it's fun, but but it's also temporary. You know, it's not going to change my life if I go on a ride for a few hours. Exactly. It, well, like I tell people, it can't tell you who you are. When I was a kid, I was, I had a, this idea, Christmas was coming and I had this idea that if I got this particular bicycle, it was going to be it for me, mm-hmm. you know, in that same way that little kids, you know, like the, you know, the Red Rider BB gun with the, you know, the compass and the stock and this thing, which tells time you get this idea that if I get this, this thing, it is going to, I'm going to be a better person. It's going to, I'm going to be able to run faster in these new shoes, you know, that kind of a feeling. And I needed to have this bike. And I was obsessed with it. It was all I would talk about. And Thanksgiving came and went and Christmas was just around the corner. And all I thought about and talked about was this bike. And I wanted the bike. And I wrote a letter to Santa Claus and I pestered my parents and you name it. And Christmas came and I did get the bike and it was awesome Yeah. for about two weeks. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I have no idea where that bike is now. I can't remember what happened to it. It's gone. Doesn't mean it wasn't great in the moment. I'm thankful for those experiences, but I have no idea what happened after that. I think that, that it's really important to realize that everybody's story, your story, my story, everybody listening, everybody's story is a story of great victories where you got the bike and great losses where something went away. And either way, whether you got the thing or whether you lost the thing, you're still here. The truth about you is more than anything you can lose or buy. And when you really know that, it starts to change the way you look at things. Right. So that's now that internal state. Instead of relying on an external source to create internal happiness, you create the internal happiness first, and then you find external things to match that yeah but we're all doing that and this is again what we've come back to learn is the externals are going to bring us joy but as you pointed out with the bicycle or a million dollars or anything else it's going to last for a couple weeks and you're excited and and then you'll move on to the next thing yeah and that's that's always what happens you know and like i said that that's fine you know honor that process but understand that again there is a difference between enjoying a toy and trying to get your identity from it. Right. Right. Everybody knows somebody's like, they are all about their car. It's yep. like, that's great. It's not, it's cars are cool, whatever, but they can't tell you who you are. There's a difference. And so when we start to disconnect our identity from our possessions or our achievements or from the opinion of others and start to, to locate who we are in a different place, good things happen. One of the things that I ask people a lot is, where do you get your you from? Where do you get your sense of identity? Because when you look at modern life, there's a pretty complicated Venn diagram of where people get their sense of identity from, and almost none of it is healthy. But there are things that you can realize, where, wait a minute, this is me, and it, it, it just is. When you get to that wonderful, pointless place of, I know just like I know I'm alive. And I would ask people listening to think about that. Maybe make a list of what are the things you know, just like you know you're alive. Nobody can disprove it. It just is. 
What do you know, just like you know your favorite song is your favorite song? What do you know, just like you know when you're in love? Those are the most interesting things about you. Those are the things worth pursuing. And like I said, it might be a short list, but if you start thinking about that list, it will get bigger and so will you. Do you think, again, I don't know where this all developed from uh, as far as chasing that external uh, do you think, do you think that was in relationship to the idea of, well, you can't find internal happiness. Therefore you have to create objects to give you fulfillment. Obviously it doesn't work, but you know, our society is not based upon your happiness. It's a based upon you buying crap. Yeah, it's based upon your marketability. (laughs) School is not based upon you becoming the best essence of yourself or the most fulfilled. It is about information, even though it's most of it is not relevant to living a fulfilled life. It doesn't teach you about debt or bills or or how to navigate the marketplace. It's just about information being essentially a homogenized cog in the wheel (laughs) with everyone knowing the same thing. So it seems like it's all this external, 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 um, and really misses the point. Well, I I think it comes from a lot of places all at once. And and I'm not a believer in conspiracy theories or anything like that. Really not. I, I don't think it works that way, but I will say that on one level, if I can keep dangling a carrot in front of you, whether that's, Hey, someday you'll get to be assistant manager or someday you'll get to go to heaven or whatever that is. If I can keep you there, if I can sell the idea that, you know what, you're supposed to be miserable right now. You got to pay your dues. If I can keep you buying into the idea that it's okay to be miserable right now because someday X, Y, Z, then you are really easy to control. Yep, absolutely. And I I don't think that there's a a smoky back room somewhere with 12 guys in it who are architecting this whole thing. But I do think that it's a principle that gets taken advantage of a lot. And I think that on on the smaller scale, you know, digging into yourself and, and figuring out, well, wow, what really makes me happy? That can seem scary, especially when you haven't been trained for it, you know? And like I said, and, and you said too, we're not really trained for it. So the idea of looking in your heart, that can feel kind of funky. It can feel cumbersome. It can feel scary. Well, it's not scary to go, boy, I uh, sure wish I had that shiny new thing. And again, it's, it's that, that pursuit is not different than sublimating with a video game or with getting drunk or whatever else. It's the same thing and it's the same illusion. But the funny thing is, what I have found in my own life and talking to a lot of other people, if you just try, you are actually really good at it. And the learning curve is not as steep as it seems. If you just go, wait a minute, there are things I love right now. There are things about me that are just really true. Just like I know I'm alive. There are things about me that I feel really good about that. I want to explore more and it's fun to do so. It doesn't take much of a jump at all. It seems like a big jump, but it's not. It doesn't take much of a jump at all to go, wait a minute, I'm creative 
or there's this thing that I love, or there's this thing that I'm good at, or this thing that I'm not good at at all, but I want to be. And all of a sudden, there's something really interesting that happens. I mean, if you ever watch somebody skateboard in a park or something like that, you see kids fall over and over and over again. It's not like the movies on the internet where the kid lands the trick. Most of the time they're falling down. And there's no money in it or anything. They just do it because it feels so good to do it. It's such a, such a powerful thing to get good at something that a skateboarder will give themselves over to something over and over and over and over again, just at the hope of that one time. There are things like that in your life where, you know what, it doesn't matter if, if people want to buy the thing I make. It doesn't matter if I'm quote unquote good at it. It just feels so good to be part of this growing process that here I go. And I guarantee you, everyone has something like that. And it doesn't even take long to look for. There is something about each and every person that you'll just do. Yeah. And that's what we need to nurture. Yeah. Because that's the truth about you. And the world needs your truth. It doesn't need more of the game. Yeah. Great points, my friend. Great points. So today we've been speaking with Dieter Randolph. Uh, again, author of uh, Meaningful Filled and also Past Okay in Seven Days. You can find Dieter at waypastokay.com. Dieter, is there anything else uh, you'd like to add? Because it's been a great conversation. I, I really have had a great time as well. Just the one thing I want to leave with is I just want to remind everybody that everything you're doing is practice. Everything is practice. What you're doing right now is going to make you good at doing that same thing in the future. So ask yourself, if your life is practicing misery, you're not going to get good at happiness. Find ways to practice happiness today. That is a great point and a great way to end the show. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much. Had a great time. Be well. Thank you for listening to The Douglas Robbins Show. To find out more about Douglas and his books, check out douglasrobbinsauthor.com.